Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram and Bill Schwab way out on the northern tip of Michigan. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Simon. And hello, Bill. Hello, Simon. Good to have you here. Um, Good to be Absolutely. And uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you to Max Grew from Intrepid, who was our guest uh, two weeks ago. Uh, really enjoyed having you on the show, Max. And uh, um, looking forward to seeing you in ooh, a matter of weeks, actually, because they'll be at the photography show in March, um, all part of the Analog Spotlight, um, which is going to be a pretty good event uh, that's, uh, that's going to be happening over the four days of the photography show in Birmingham in the UK so uh, looking forward to that one um, but we're sort of um, time poor today so let's crack on and quickly catch up with Andrew to find out what you've been up to Andrew time poor but uh, content rich I think so I'll I think keep so. my I'll keep my bit to 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 the minimum so the main thing I just want to bring you up to date on is I was very excited to see that Analog Wonderland are stocking dry plates, Jason Lane's dry plates, and uh, he he's stocking ISO 2, which is the um, long tonal range plate, and he's stocking an ISO 25, which is a steeper contrast gradient, so I understand. But I'm particularly excited because I want to use them for making salt prints and I haven't done much salt printing for ages, and I've been trying to up my game on the chemistry and making sure I've got things clean and the right materials. And I thought, yeah, these dry plates will be perfect. So I was chatting with Jason Lane from Pictoria Graphica and, uh, about which one would be, would be better, and he said he wasn't too sure. But then I thought I read the, the uh, information about both sets of um, plates that you can get and I think the low ISO the ISO 2 would be well suited because it's got a very long tonal range and I can get good highlights good shadows and I can as I'm developing developing it by inspection because it's orthochromatic uh, I can produce a denser negative because salt printing likes a denser negative with a good tonal range so I'm very excited and then I also in order to complement the dry plates the oldie style dry plates I won this um, dodgy French lens on eBay for 25 quid yesterday, 26 quid. Uh, Simon, which is, um, you said, sounds interesting when I told you that I'd won it. Uh, so there's this Berth, Berthiot, Berthio? I yeah, don't know. We've, we've, we've still not entirely worked out how to say it. Um, no. <laughs> no. Berth, Berthio Paris Urigraphy F215 lens. It's uh, And it has seems to have working apertures. Doesn't have a shutter, of course, but then ISO two for those uh, dry plates. All I need is uh, is my large format photographer's hat to put over the lens to act as a shutter, and I'm really quite excited about. I, I like having the idea of a project in mind for glass plates because I thought, well, why 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 do I want these glass plates? You know, and I backed the glass the Kickstarter, the Chromographica dry plate. Uh, holders and, and i think they're going to be delivered in march or april so just perfect to start shooting out in my uh, in the fens where i live uh, dry plate pictures for salt printing i feel slightly hesitant in asking this but i think i'm going to have to um <laughs> could you tell us a bit about salt printing 
Uh, yeah. Do you do any salt printing, Bill? Because you're a man of. Uh, I do. I haven't done any for a little while, but I've just been uh, gearing up. I just got Christina's book, and uh, I'm gearing up to do it again. I've been playing around the, with a lot of things. Is that the is that the one I've got? Is that the salt print manual? Is that is that the one? Yeah. Is it Christina Z. Anderson? Is she? Is uh, I'm just having to lean over. Oh no, this is a different one. This is Ellie Young. I've got the salt print manual. There's a few okay, of them. No, I don't know about that one. Um, Christine Anderson is a, a great photographer up in Montana. She's kind of the go-to people for a lot of the alt process people over here. Um, she's okay. a um, she's a a, a, re- a relentless tester, and um, she writes the book on a lot of these things, and then okay. it expands out from there. Right. I'll check her out as well. Certainly, the the uh, the book I can recommend because it's the one I've read is the mm-hmm. salt print the salt print manual by ellie young and she also does a lot of testing and experimentation but so Great. um in in very basic summary uh simon and you, you take some paper uh, let's just say watercolor paper but you can dive into into that and get all sorts of different watercolor paper i use something about 300 grams 350 grams and you uh, you have to coat it with a probably something like a two percent solution of salt uh water pure well, literally, literally yeah. sodium chloride sodium chloride yeah it has to yeah. be pure though don't use table salt because that has other additives in it so no, you, you either you non-iodized or kosher salt yeah yeah so there's two you've got two options you can either well i've got some i saw some rock salt which claims to have non-additives in or you can go to wet plate supplies down the road from me and buy a chemical gra- a laboratory grade sodium chloride, which is probably your best bet, to be honest, yeah. uh, for about five, five pounds for a couple of hundred you grams. Have, you have a store for wet plate supplies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's five wow. miles from where I live, Bill. You look them up on the Internet. It's a guy called Kevin and he runs a company called Wet Plate Supplies. And you wow. can you can buy and it's a it's in a lock up garage, you know, like a a small building. You wouldn't yeah. know it's you wouldn't know it's there. You knock on his door and he opens it. Blinks because it's all kind of dark and gloomy in there. And he's yeah. surrounded by old wooden cameras, plate holders, bottles, wow. chemicals. And well, it's just it's... this it's this online business that just happens to be five miles down the road. So when I place an order with him, he, he leaves it on my doorstep. Like the milk. Wow, <laughs> that's a dream. You know, I mean, in my years of doing starting wet plate, you know, just sourcing this stuff was half the battle. You know, to have somebody five miles away—that's incredible. Yeah, so I buy my silver nitrate from him. So you need to get yourself some, and and it's the best prices. You can go to Silverprint, which is a UK store, and I don't know whether they which source they use, but I, you pay twice as much as I as you pay for Kevin down the road from me. So yeah. you, you've got to get your paper coated, and you you. You can you can float your paper. Ellie Young suggests you don't float your paper, but you brush it on with a uh, the the salt solution. Uh, but let's just say you have to salt your paper first, let it dry, and then that'll stay. You can, you can put that paper aside and just put it in a box marked up salted paper. When you're ready to make your salt print, and this is important because you don't want to hang about really, according to Ellie Young, uh, you you. You get a probably bill. I'm very conscious with Bill hovering in the background. Twelve percent silver nitrate solution you make up. Some people add some citric acid to it. I think that might help as a bit of a preservative. 
and then you mark it out also the also works. Yeah, oh, it's sorry. a very acidic process. So having the citric acid in there um, just makes everything a little bit more acidic and makes the you know gives you a little bit better imagery as well. Yeah. Does it? Yeah. Or, well, yeah, I, I and treating your treating your paper as well. If you don't have an acidic paper. Or if you're using a buffered paper, you like to um, treat that paper with oxalic acid, like maybe a 3% solution. And that, right. that helps as well. It gives you a little bit more dense of an image. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. No, that's okay. I've got so much to learn. I've only I've made some salt prints last year and with mixed results. I liked what I got, but I felt I could always do better. So I'm trying to, right. up, my, I'm trying to up my game a bit. So yeah. I think I was using too weak a solution of silver nitrate as well, and that doesn't help. It's, uh, well, and that's elite. the thing about all of these processes is that, you know, it's much like a game of golf. Anybody can hit the ball in a hole, but then you spend the rest of your life, you know, <laughs> tweaking it. Yeah. yeah. No, don't, don't tell me that. Oh, you're going down the rabbit hole, I can tell. I mean, it's <laughs> interesting to hear you even mention salt printing. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, so you, yeah, so, Simon, you've coated your salt paper. You've got... Then you have your negative, and there's a whole big thing, you know, whether it's a digital negative or a negative you've produced um, yourself. So I've been in using camera. four. I've been using in camera. I've been using four or five negatives, at ones that look like they've got a good tonal range, but are quite dense. So uh, something with a good exposed to a good tonal range. Maybe you want to use a pyro type developer maybe i don't know bill perhaps will be a comment on that but am i right bill in thinking the negative whether it's produced digitally or uh, or in camera should um uh, i first thought it should be contrasted but actually i'm reading that it actually doesn't need to be contrasted it has to have good tonal range it just has, a, it has to have nature. a good tone yeah the, the density is the most important thing to have just a little bit more of a dense negative um yeah. still with a good tonal range you don't really want the contrast because you're going to clip out your highlights even more so with salt printing and yeah and uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, basically that's, um, you know, it's really hard shooting in camera negatives for a lot of the alt processes is really a difficult thing to do now, you know, and I, I not discounting the large format imagery, but being able to make digital negatives now is one of the things that's such a gift with the digital realm that you can bend that curve to fit the process. So depending on the process, salt printing, you know, it has a pretty good exposure scale, but, you know, you have to have a really good negative made for that process. So, um, you know, it tends to be like if you shoot an in-camera negative, it's good for salt printing or maybe platinum palladium printing, but it's not going to be so great for doing silver prints. Right. So that brings me back to my excitement about Jason Lane's um, dry dry plates. So, mm -hmm. Bill, are you aware that there was this Kickstarter late last year to produce brand new dry plate holders. I don't know if you were. If no, I'm not aware of that, but uh, I know that there have been a lot of efforts that they've uh, for different things, whether it be well, the uh, new Polaroid and that kind of thing. Yeah. But this is, this is pretty much there now. They've had a slight hiccup just recently with some molds being broken, I think, but by. I think so they're just said, making basically plate holders for them, for the cameras then. Yeah. They're not making the dry plates. I get you. OK. Well, no, the, the, the Kickstarter was for the plate holders. But Jason Lane, who's been a guest on this show previously, who's actually. A, yeah, he's he designed lenses and you can you can listen okay. to him in much more detail uh, talking on Simon's other podcast, which is the okay. classic, lenses, classic lenses podcast. But anyway, uh -huh. J J Jason runs Pictoria Graphica. 
which is dry plate company and so he makes quarter plate half plate nine by 12 all different odd sizes four five iso2 and iso25 and now i'm going to buy and it's about in the u.s it's 40 dollars for a pack of 10 of these things that's not Uh, bad no Uh, expertly coated and so i'm going to i'm going to and now they're available in the uk so i'm going i think i'm just going to use the iso2 plates because they're just they're described as having very long tonal range and because they're also chromatic so you can inspect them develop them by inspection so i can yeah right I, i can build the density up now then and i will just use those glass plates for salt printing so i'm actually I'm not, i won't use them for anything else i'm just going to use them for salt printing for that's just my that, plan for it, so yeah, yeah, yeah just, exactly. just for that so i can and it, okay i know i can make digital negatives well i can't but i could do if i wanted to no and i, I, yeah, I just no. love i just love the idea of shooting with this dodgy old lens i bought this wet plate dry plate uh old styley technology and then salt printing it in a very basic way you know and that's uh that's got, uh, and that's, that's got me very excited. And that's the beauty of it, too. I mean, it's a more, it's a more difficult way, but it's a little bit more real, if you'll ex- pardon the expression, I think. I mean, well, I, it, I, the digital negatives I like to do because I have to produce nice prints and do that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I would prefer to, to, to produce in cameras. I know several people now that have gone back to that, even that have been real proponents of digital negative making that have gone back to in-camera negatives and you know a little bit more of a challenge um i'm just just thinking we 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 slightly going uh, i'm I'm going to say he's a little bit off piste well you you did ask Um, you know no no but i'm I'm thinking myself um this this whole subject about digital negatives i think is something i think we need to we need to jump into um and it's and seeing we're actually on on the subject of it do you mind if we if we ask bill a bit a little bit more about digital negatives and uh, the various uses and how he produces them and things like that because i think you know we've 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 spent a few minutes talking about them already so i think we should have a, a wider chat about yeah. that i'm sorry i didn't mean to hijack things no there. not at all not at all i mean at the end of the day that's <laughs> that's why you're here bill we want to talk we want to know more about these things and there there are so many other things that to the point where um if we don't get to hear what i've been up for the last two weeks up to the last two weeks that's absolutely fine by me and probably our listeners too so uh so let, let's 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 jump into digital negatives in a little bit more detail if you if you will sure i'm game so what's the digital negative bill <laughs> well what a digital negative is is it's a uh and it's an inkjet produced or not necessarily always inkjet produced sometimes on a typesetter but less that less or uh say like on a um on a lambda printer uh, but less so these days because there's less availability of those machines. Um, and everybody has a digital inkjet printer. Um, so this is basically a way of taking your imagery, um, creating a, a digital negative that is, I say, bent. Uh, the curve is bent toward the process that you're doing. So I can make a, um, a quote-unquote perfect negative for palladium printing, say. But that Bill, negative Bill, is. Bill, if I can, yes. if I can just take you back a little bit further in the process. Um, so Certainly. we are talking about creating a digital negative from a a large format or whatever format negative in the first place. So it, 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 this, it this has an analog start or not? Yes, it doesn't even have to be an analog start. It can start off on your iPhone, and I teach people that now too because so many more people are using those things, and it's an easy way to start showing them traditional processes even though they don't have a view camera or they don't have a film camera of any kind. 
So basically all you need is an image of some sort um, and then you digitize that image. So if it's a piece of film, you scan that piece of film at the highest resolution that you can. And then you produce from that scanned image, you produce a on your screen, you um, you you say, uh, for lack of a better term, you burn and dodge and you 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 perfect your image that way. And then you basically invert that image and you print out a digital negative to be able to be printed through a contact printing uh, method. Um, um, you know, uh, has to be UV light um process um so basically what you're doing is for these processes you have to create a negative that is the final size of the image that you want to produce so um you know i can take an eight by ten piece of film scan an image and i can make a four by five print of it or a four by five digital negative to make a smaller print or i can make a, a you know 20 by 24 a larger print with that as long as I have a real high resolution image to start with, and it doesn't matter whether it started off on film or it started off as um, a digital file. Um, so basically, though, um, each process responds in different ways to certain light and the inks that are in the in the negative itself that you're creating. So you have to build a curve, um, you know, exposure curve for that so that what you see on your screen ends up coming out in the uh, developer tray. So basically, you have to test out um, a 21-step uh, step wedge, basically, and you want to be able to um, bend that curve so that it reproduces in the same way that you see it on your screen or the way that you see it in your mind or see it in your camera. So that's what it happens there is you've got this – you've got the original file. It doesn't have to be like um, – Andrew was speaking, it doesn't have to be shot on a piece of film perfectly for that image. I can take any image and I can then afterward take and change that image so that it will be um, uh, most um, opportune for that process that I'm working with. Am Bill, I making sense? You, you are, Bill, yes. Can I ask a question, though? Because yes. uh, what, what do you print it out onto? I print it on, out onto some sort of a substrate. Uh, Pictorico is a company that makes this. It's basically overhead projector film. And now what's happened is they've taken that film and they've created coatings much like they have on digital papers that will accept these inks. So this is basically a piece of clear film and uh, it, it is coated to accept the ink and you run that through. It's um, uh, Pictorico makes it. Um, there's another company called Fixons that makes it. There's another company called Inkpress that makes it. And it's basically like a clear piece of plastic film. It's like a film base without, um, without any kind of um, emulsion coating. Yeah. So when I've, you're, when I've you're tried the emulsion onto it, when I've, yes, when I've tried it, I, I just stuck in some overhead projector film that I'd had lying around and it doesn't work very well. It needs some kind of, roughed up no, surface, it has to be, it? right it has to have a surface that's that's created uh for that it's a coated surface that accepts the ink bill have you uh, heard have you heard of this web tool to help create digital negatives um friend uh a friend of my other podcast on the lenses podcast james gurin he makes cyanotypes beautiful cyanotypes and he uses this web tool called uh chart throb C-H-A-R-T. Yeah, a lot of people have been using chart throb and I've heard about that and I have not used that yet. Um, I used to build them from scratch, but now mm. there's a very good program uh, been, been created by um, 
a guy named Richard Boatwell here in the States that's called Quick Curve DN. And what that does is it helps you build these curves that I'm talking about. It, it automates okay. it a little bit more than before. You don't have to plot out each reading with a sensitometer and you don't have to um, build a spreadsheet to be able to, you know, have your input match your output, that kind of a thing. It used to be much more complicated. So I'm assuming that chart drop is a similar kind of a program. Yeah, but, I think uh, from, I, don't from know, what, I don't know enough about it to really talk about it. Well, I, we interviewed James on the show a week or two ago. So if, if folks are interested in listening to James talk about that particular um, piece of software, Chartthrob, you could go back and listen to the Lenses podcast. Yeah, so. I'll have to go back and, and see and check that out. Now, the, the pr process that I'm using uses a, a rip, um, um, a rip called QTR, a quick to, uh, quad tone rip created by a guy named Roy Harrington. And then, so what happens is Richard's program is basically an overlying app that, that helps you, um, it, it makes that an easier program to use. So basically rather than using, and it has to be used on Epson printers because it uses the Epson ink method. Um, but, but what happens is, is your, um, you're basically replacing the Epson print driver with this other print driver of Quadtone Rip. And uh, there's another book. Going to be, I was mentioning the salt printing book was Christina Anderson. It's called Salted Paper Printing. I have it here. And she's also working on a book right now that I'm contributing to called Digital Negative Making. And it's going to be using this quad tone rip. Mm. And that'll be coming out sometime in this next year. And, and if I know, you know, anything about Christina's books is it's going to be very thorough mm. and um, uh, several different methods of creating them. So, no, I have not tried, tried charts, Rob. Okay. But it's basically sounds like it's the same kind of a thing. You're basically building a curve for that specific process. So basically using Richard Boatwell's program, I can sit down and within an hour, I can have a, a perfect curve built for whatever process I'm using. So I've got one now that's really good for Sanotype. I've got one that's great for Van Dyke Brown. I've got one for Palladium that's really good. And um, I am uh, working on some gum ones right now for gum bichromate. So that way I've got a certain curve in my machine, in my computer, for any type of print that I'm working with. So basically I get my image that I've shot with my large format camera all the way down to my iPhone. I work it up on my screen to look exactly like I want it to work in the print. Then I invert that image and I print it out through my curve for that process. And then yeah. I can make as many prints as I want in that process using that, um, using that formula. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it basically, you know, back in the day when I would make palladium prints or platinum prints um, from in-camera negatives or, uh, you know, say I had a, a, a 120 negative that I wanted to make into something that was an 8 by 10 palladium print. Well, I would have to make a negative that size. And before digital negatives, I would have to go with orthofilm and I would have to do um, internegs and that kind of a thing. And each generation, you would lose a bit of detail. So basically, this is made, you know, it's it's been revolutionary matching the 21st century with the 19th century. Well, I think it sounds like I'm regressing in, in the technique that I want to adopt. So I, I'm not going anywhere near the computer. I'm, I'm no, just well, it's gonna... a good way to do it. It's a good way to do it because I highly recommend that everybody start the way that you're starting because that way you have a grasp on what you're doing once you get to this level of it. Yeah. Well, just a, just another question. I mean, that the the, the method that you doing there is uh, it's it's effectively contact printing uh, the the digital negative is 
would that yes. would that be correct? Yeah. So yes. could you also use um, a digital negative for conventional work uh, yes. with an enlarger? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So you it's just become more. Fit, it's, sorry. It's becoming more accepted now. Um, you use a slightly different film base. You use a fog, a more of a fogged, more of an opaque film base. Um, not opaque, I don't mean, but more of a translucent film base with a little bit of fogging to it for doing silver printing. Uh, the problem being is that silver printing is very, very um, sharp and very precise. So the digital negatives have gotten a lot better over the years to the point where they're very nice and creamy to, in their tonality. But there were there was some coarseness to them. So that would translate more into printing a silver print, say, in a contact printing method than it would printing a palladium print. Because in printing a palladium print, you're coating your own emulsion on on a watercolor paper of some sort. So there's a lot of tooth to that paper, perhaps. And you're not going to get as extremely sharp an image. So any kind of a slight aberration in that negative might not show up in the print, whereas on a silver print, it does. So you have to have if you're printing digital negatives for silver printing, they have to be a little bit more precise and a little bit better produced. Um, is that an area but it does work and I've seen them and they're beautiful when Christine and you work on this book together will yeah. she look at producing digital negatives for both silver printing and alternative processes do you think I believe that she is uh, basically what Christina's thing is going to be is just to basically create the negative for whatever process it is that you're using you know she's giving you the method and the tools to create the image no matter what process you're is and then it's up to you to bend it for that specific process is what i'm saying Um, i'm not really sure and it's not just me that's going to be working with her on this she's she's tapping into a lot of people that do what i do here that are um that are pretty known for it like Kara kuklis is going to be one of these people Um, ron reader was one of these people that was going to be writing the book with her and unfortunately ron passed away um uh, much too young uh last year and so she's kind of carrying the torch with this and going to finish this book out um and so there's going to be a lot of people contributing to it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would suggest checking out her prints. They're, they're focal press books. She's done them on gum printing. She's done it on salted paper printing. She's done it on, I mean, it's a whole series of books. And through her other people, another good friend of mine named Clay Harmon did one on, um, on photogravure, on photo etching with polymer plates. And um, it's quite amazing what they've done. There's a, there's, quite a series of books for alternative process printing and therefore the process is getting more so it sounds like it's becoming more prevalent in in europe um i have to say though that this summer i went to the the festival in Arles and i showed some of my work there and and um unfortunately some of the galleries over there just looked at me like i had two heads they just said that people weren't really interested in it and uh really no yeah yeah Uh, i was i was pretty shocked i think i don't think I think what happened is, is they were they were more behind the ball than they like to admit. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but, yeah, it was uh, and I was quite shocked that throughout that whole festival, all the photographs of all the shows I saw, which were thousands of photographs. I saw two photographs that were alternative process printed. All everything else was digitally printed or chromogenically printed. I couldn't believe it. There were some films, things, but it's pretty amazing how how the digital world took over a lot of that so fast. I think that what's happening now is there is this resurgence of um, alternative processes, which of course, (laughs) traditional 
film photography, I think, has now become one of the alternative <laughs> processes. Um, but, you know, you've everybody's seen the uh, the news lately that, that Kodak is producing more film than they have in years. They've sold more film in the last year than they've sold in years. So there is an explosion of film happening. And I think it tends to be a lot of digital natives that are using it. You know, people that never had film in their lives are going to that. You know, younger people are, are doing it. You know. so I, I find I find that quite exciting, and because the, there are a lot of people that are interested in the darkroom uh, mm-hmm. as a as a printing process, and they have, as you just said, there they've got very little uh, knowledge of film, and exactly, and it's a it's a way of actually getting them in there and exposing exposing themselves to to the to an analog process so it's, it's another way to actually bring people to film and say well okay so you've got a photograph that you like and you'd like to see that printed in a different way then yeah. if we can work at this just just so you know i've i've got uh not me but uh, there's a um a darkroom club that i'm associated with and uh, we we like to get people into it and we want to encourage people to to take more shots with film on all formats and to mm-hmm. and to and to print. And I'm very much uh, a new guy as far as printing is concerned. I've I've yet to produce a, a print I'm happy with. Although I guess there's some people out there that've been doing it for 20 years that aren't happy with what they produce. But um, oh yeah, yeah I, I think that it, it's if there's other ways of getting those people in there without having to go through the film bit first. And then we can then introduce them to the film bit after. Uh, then I, th- I think that's uh, it's another way of getting people interested in the in, in the whole thing, really. Well, I think that that's what's happened. You know, I mean, um, you know, my son, I'm an older dad of a, a younger boy. My son's 15 and his friends, you know, I've got I picked up a new uh, um, uh, Instax camera made by Mint in um, on Hong Kong and it shoots Instax wide film. And it's fun. And I've been around some of his friends and I've taken the pictures and these kids just love it. They love holding this thing. They love having this tangible image that they can hold. And, you know, they'll take pictures of it with their cell phones and put it up on Instagram, which is hilarious to me. But um, but but yeah, I mean, it's a completely different thing for them. You know, they they've never had that experience of the smell of a dark room. The you know, it's so much 70. more. It's pardon me. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The RF 70. Yeah, I love that camera. I've I've been I've had it now for about six months. I used it on a project in Iceland back in the fall, and uh, you know I love the thing. You know I've been running film through it like crazy. It's um, isn't it? Yeah, and and that's the kind of thing with photography that I think that you know I mean it's one thing to have your cell phone and to do selfies, but that's it's so myopic, it's so limited, you know. And when you find out that there's this whole other world that you can control and work with and mix things up and have smells and work with your hands and get them wet. It's a completely different thing. And I think that what's happened is a lot of these people that have never had that in their lives are discovering this and realizing this is fun, you know, as much as it, I thought it was fun for me to sit down and push buttons for a while. You know, I mean, I went headlong into the digital thing long, long time ago and then lost interest in it because I saw what it was doing to the analog market, you know, and, I sort of dove back headlong into the analog side of it. So it's only recently that I've started to work digitally as well, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I can see the allure. Of, uh, the grass is greener on the other side. And, and I think that the analog side is much more fun than the digital side. Yeah, I mean, no. it's fun so to work it's- with curves and it's fun to push buttons and it's fun to try to digitally do what we've already been able to do for 100 years with film, you know. So I don't know. It's 
there is definitely a place for it and I love using it. Um, but I like, there's still something about the dark room and making something with your hands. That's much more attractive for me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I've, I've, it's, it's got to be down to me because I've completely messed up the format of this uh, podcast. So I think that's um, probably my problem. No, well, you've been interesting, Bill. So, uh, yeah, so it is your fault. Um, <laughs> um, so I think what we'll do to get things slightly uh, back on track, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm not going to talk about what I've been up to, not, le- not at this part of the show, at least anyway. And uh, let's... I think it, it's a good time to let our listeners know a little bit more about you because I know that there are a lot of people out there that know exactly who you are, um, but there are some people that aren't and uh, that don't know that. So uh, perhaps you can give us a, a little bit of a, a, a potted history about yourself, Bill. Well, it's nice of you to say that people would know about me, but uh, you know, it's hard from this perspective. You know, you just do what you do for so long, and then when you go someplace and you find out that somebody's been following your work, it's this nice little added gift. But um, I, I've been a photographer pretty much all my life. Um, my great grandfather was a photographer back in the turn of the century in, in Detroit, he had a, a professional studio and, you know, um, from that, my dad, five brothers, everybody was a rank amateur. And so there were a larger's, there was all this gear around me when I was a kid, it just was fascinating to me. And, um, I just became what I am. I don't know. It's hard to, hard to even go back and tell you where that happened. Um, but I've been, um, you know, it's it's just been a long, long haul. You know, I've been, uh, I've done just about everything. I've worked in newspapers. I've worked in journalism. I've worked in editorial work. I've traveled all over the country doing annual reports for corporations, that kind of thing. But for, I'd say the last 15 or 20 years, I've just focused primarily on my own work and my own branding and my own experience and sharing that with other people. Um, so I've created this event that I've told you about called Photostock that happens every year here in northern Michigan. Um, I run workshops. Um, I publish. I have a publishing company called North Light Press where I publish other photographers' work. Um, I'm 13 books into that now. Um, I run trips to Faroe Islands and Iceland. I've been doing that for about 15 years. Maybe twice a year I take groups of um, photographers and uh you know now other artists i've taken writers um, sketch artists that kind of thing um basically i do whatever i can to continue making a living with my camera or with photography okay well the you've i mean there, there were so many things there you just you've just touched upon um right it's hard it's a hard thing to uh, nail down i, I don't uh, want to uh, take up all of your time yeah, well, I think the the the, the one that um, let's let's start off with uh, photo stock. Um, okay. So that, that's a, a get together that that's grown from small small beginnings. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, photo stock started off on a, um, a website, a forum that maybe some of your listeners are familiar with. It was called APUG, APUG, Analog Photographers Users Group. And uh, I joined in on that back in 2002 when a lot of us were feeling like um, we were a dying breed. And uh, uh, people from all over the world collected on this website. And I live here now, but I I had this property up here in northern Michigan, 10 acres of property. And I decided it would be fun to try to do some sort of a photography gathering. Uh, So on APUG back in 2006, I published an invite for people to come here, bring a tent bring some prints, 
you know, some beer, sit around a fire, talk about our work, that kind of thing. And uh, I didn't know who would show up or what would happen. And um, I think about 14 or 15 people showed up and uh, it just became the beginning. There was one of the gentlemen there, his name's Dan Henderson. He had come and he said, wow, this is like, uh, this is like Woodstock for photographers. (laughs) And I thought, wow, there you go. There's the name. So that's what it became. And the next year we had 80 people it, it just kept growing. And, uh, I finally had to put a kind of a cap on it and start. It was always a free event, but it took a lot out of me and it took a lot out of my property here. So I finally moved it to a little hotel about 12 miles away from here and started charging a fee and started paying presenters to come and talk with us at just a nominal fee and started to invite, you know, um, emerging photographers as well as well-known people to come and, Lo and behold, they came, you know, so we started off one of the bigger first bigger names we had was Shelby Lee Adams came and joined us. And then we've had over the years, Holly Roberts, um, Andrew Moore, Ted Orland, Alan Ross, um, Dan Burkholder. This year we have Larry Fink um, and another very good and very well-known alternative process printer in this country and educator by the name of Jill Enfield, who would be a great person to have on your show in the future, perhaps. Um, and then I have uh, lesser known people or up and coming, uh, like I say, emerging photographers. And we usually have 10 to 12 people over a four, uh, actually a three night period. And everybody gets an hour at the microphone, at the projector, and they present their work. And it becomes a way for everybody to share their own vision. And also for me to kind of curate an event that takes people out of their comfort zone. I mean, when we started off, everybody was an Ansel Adams disciple and you know, I mean, that's what it is. And I love that. And I'm not going to be little that for anybody, but there's so much more to photography than rocks and trees. And, um, I started to do that. I would bring in like, say Holly Roberts, more of a collage artist to use as a photo based collage artist, or, you know, somebody traditional like, um, Shelby Lee, or like I say, we've had Ted Orland who worked with Ansel Adams, but is anything but traditional. Um, so anything that shakes up people's, um, perception of what they do, and so it gives us a chance every year now to all get together. It gives you a chance to uh, recharge your batteries, so to speak. Um, it gives you other influences. It gives you a chance to talk to other people that do things that you might not have even thought of. Um, and it's a great time. And it's just become, a, like I say, it's an annual deal now. And people look forward to it. I mean, they book their room as soon as they leave the one event. They book the room for the next year. This year, I'm stepping up the game, though. I'm moving it from the little hotel that we've used for the last 10 years, and it's going to a place called Boyne Highlands, which is a ski resort not far from me. I live in kind of a resort area in northern Michigan now, and um, in the summertime, it's a golf and a golf resort, and it's a pretty nice place, professional meeting rooms, you know, no longer the, uh, the kind of off-the-cuff hippie fest that we used to have. It's getting a little more <laughs> – it's getting a little more um, – you know, a little bit more mainstream, but trying to keep that same feel. I like the idea of beer and round a campfire. I'm not sure I'm so keen on the corporate hotel idea, Bill, to be truthful. Yeah, you know, it's what you've got to do. You know, that was the problem is that it just grew to the point where it just couldn't be that anymore. You know, um, it's, uh, you know, you can't limit something like that. You know, you can't say, well, I will only want 20 people on my property. And, you know, it just got to the point where there were people coming here and I didn't know who they were and yeah. They would leave and I'd find cigarette butts off in the woods where I didn't mm. know people had even gone. And yeah. it just became one of those things where it had to, 
you know, it was either going to collapse under the weight of itself or it was going to have to, to grow. And, um, sure. I'm always, every year I'm always at that point where I think, you know, I don't know if I've got this in me another year, but, um, I, a lot of people would miss it if it didn't happen. And so you need, an, you need an apprentice, don't you? That's what you need. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, you know, this year I've expanded a little bit more. I have a few more people helping me out with it. Um, it tends to be a little bit more of a one-man band kind of a thing, though, because it really is my own vision, and I live kind of remotely, so it's not like I have people at my fingertips to be able to help me out with this. So when is it this year, Bill, and where, where is it? Can folks still sign up? Is it too late? Oh, they can still sign up if they go to photostockfest.com, all one word. You can pre-register now, basically getting yourself on the newsletter list. Um, beginning in May is when we're going to start early discounted res uh, um, registration. Uh, there'll be a code for people to call the hotel to book their room so they can have a discount um, on their rooms. Um, uh, but basically, photostockfest.com, you'll see what we're up to there. And uh, you can pre-register and get on the newsletter, like I say. Um, it happens this year from June 11th to 14th. We used to do it just at the solstice because I figured what better day for a photography festival but the longest mm -hmm. day of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of the logistics of moving it to where we have, we had to change the date. So it, we moved it up a week. It's, um, like I say, June 11th to 14th this year. And it happens in northern Michigan, um, Petoskey, Michigan, Harbor Springs. If you look on your maps, uh, we have a, an airport that serves Detroit close by. So people oh, fly into all We've had uh, people from Australia. We've had several Brits. We've had, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with any of them, but we have quite a large contingent that's come over from Great Britain over the years. Um, yeah, it's a really great event. I invite everybody to check it out. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to come. I, uh, I, I try and get to the States every two or three years. Our next trip was going to be washington state but maybe i'll persuade miss my missus to uh, make it make it Mich michigan instead she'll yeah, say where what's in yeah. michigan exactly uh, yeah well it's a beautiful area you know look at your map we're surrounded by the great lakes which are like, uh, are like oceans you can't see the other side of them they're very big yeah. and lake superior and, well lake, Mich lake michigan lake superior there i don't know how far they are across but like a sea, Lake Michigan is about uh, from where I am here to over to Wisconsin. It's about ninety miles. Um, I live about two miles off the lake here in northern Michigan, but we're pretty much surrounded all the way around us up here by the big lake. So it changes our weather. You know, right now there's two feet of snow on the ground. I'm looking out my window at a lacy wonderland. Looks like Narnia. Mm. I'm, just, I'm just looking at a photograph, uh, a group, a group photo. I don't know when which which year it was taken, uh, but mm -hmm. it, there's a load of people in in front of uh, a log cabin of some description. Maybe about oh, that's the workshop, and that's where I'm sitting right now talking to you. That is my studio, which I built 2015. I ran two kickstarters, and we built the building from those kickstarters, basically. It's where I live, and it tends to be my studio now, full time. But it used it's pretty much the gathering place for the workshops for Photostock. Um, I've had a lot of people in here teaching over the years. There's been a lot of cool people in this room. 
Well, my my thought is, uh, you know, there must be about 50 people in that photograph, I'm guessing. Right. Those were all people that helped build the building, and those are all people that come to the event pretty much every year. That's kind of the the core people. Yeah, I'm, I, it just it just makes me wonder what's it like to have that number of photographers all in the same place at the same time. Is that is that uh, is that a wonderful thing that everything goes really well, or uh, do, you, do, you, do you get some? Many photographers are, are quite opinionated in their views and things like that. So I'm just although that a lot of that is online, that well, is, and uh, whereas in reality perhaps it's a bit different. No, it's truly wonderful. Um, I tend to be kind of a social photographer. I know that a lot of people like to photograph on their own, but it's one of the reasons I created these trips that I do. I like to go with people. It's fun to have somebody to have breakfast with and talk about the work that you did that day. So, no, it's a great time. And kind of the unspoken rule of photo stock is you check your ego at the door. You know, nobody, um, you know, whether you're a household name in photography or you just picked up a camera, you're pretty much an equal when you're at photo stock. And it's pretty much surrounds the... <laughs> The beer, I would say, maybe I don't know. It's a, uh, it's it's just really nice because people bring their work, and it's really it gives a lot of people their one outlet a year to show their work. So when we started off, people came, and they would have a box of prints, you know, loose prints. Well, then it started getting a little bit. People started upping the game, and now people come with like full-on portfolios and beautifully mounted images. And a lot of the people from our group have gone on, and with the knowledge that they've gained from each of us and each, all of us collectively, they've gone out into the world and they've gotten galleries and they've started to sell their work. And it's amazing what's happened over the last 15 years with this event. You know, I mean, um, I don't know. It's really, um, I mean, I'd like to think it had something to do with me, but basically all I do is throw the party every year and this is what's happened with it. And there's something to, there's something that happens every year when you bring a bunch of creative minds together and you let them, drink beer and talk and share their work and you'd be surprised the effect that it has over the next year and then people come back the next year and they've started to add a new element to their work or they've started to do this or they've you know somebody found out about salt printing and they've gone home and they've perfected it over the year it's pretty amazing what happens so I, I really like being able to create a scene where people find some fulfillment and they find some self-expression and uh, they find a way to you know get it out once a year if that's the only thing they get to do. I mean, a lot of the people that come, that's their one big gig a year, you know, and they work everything toward that one thing, you know. Um, and at the same time, I've had a lot of pretty famous people come and they just like are wowed. They can't imagine, they can't believe how, you know, how, I don't know. It's a really cool thing. I just, I can't really explain it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's just that's really good. We don't we've never had any problem with people, you know, not getting along. That's for sure. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I, I think Andrew's probably in the same place as me. I think uh, and maybe a lot of our listeners at the moment have just have just got this this view of uh, of the event and just like wishing. Um, hopefully, many many listeners will be able to uh, to to join you. But those that can't, um, like myself, you know, it will be uh, a wonderful event to go to. And well, they can and always follow along online as well and uh, and see what happens and make it a goal for the future. Because I don't I don't think we'll quit for any time soon. No. So, and that's just one aspect of what I do. Well, <laughs> about, uh, well, actually, if, business. I was going to say, if, if we can, if we can stay on that 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 general uh, topic of, of of the the, it's not really a meetup, but it's that 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 kind of thing, uh, because this is something that 
Andrew and I, over Christmas, we were having a little chat because we've been uh, threatening to do some kind of uh, get together for for listeners of the podcast in in the UK. Mm-hmm. And out of that conversation, um, and also a conversation I had with uh, Stephen Segersby when I went up to see him when he he donated a, a large format in larger for to the Darkroom Club. Oh, wonderful. Um, and um even only through online but yeah yeah is is i mean listen listen to um I, I know you've listened to a few podcasts but do do listen to to steven's podcast uh, i will episode. now that i've talked with you guys i'll go back and i'll listen yeah. to all of them um but one of the in fact I, well this this so a conversation came out of uh, the conversation i was having with steven and 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 this also goes back to the podcast as well because he spoke at the time in the podcast about uh, the forest of dean uh, being quite a, a special place and then mm-hmm. subject gone on to things like camping and stuff like that and then um all things as these things all coalesced in the conversation i had with uh with with andrew um about potentially doing some kind of meet meet up as a is a perhaps a camping event somewhere the past at the forest of dean um later this year and we've we've actually penciled a date in that um, and we've done no more organisation other than what you can hear at this moment. Um, <laughs> and that is um, <laughs> Saturday, the th- am I right? Saturday, the 30th of May. It's the May bank holiday, the second May bank holiday, which may well be, may well be. Yeah. So I'd, yeah, yes. we ha- it's a public holiday bill where we have. Yeah, over in this country, we call it Memorial Day. Ah. Is that so? Same time, yeah. So it's, it's like a four-day weekend where everybody forgets what it's all about, but they go out and party and drink and have a good time. Yeah. So Monday, the first of June, is actually the public holiday. Um, so it's that weekend. Yeah. Simon, you'll be so close the, to Photostock. Yeah. yeah we, could, to- we could we could do a live link up with <laughs> almost six almost of us, six of us sitting in a caravan <laughs> drinking old peculiar. <laughs> These, you know. Be careful, though, because uh, be careful what you wish for. Like I say, that first year was the nice calm year on the fire. And then after that, it just started to get wild. Well, I couldn't. Neither Simon or I have 10 acres of land to spare. That's the first thing. (laughs) Yeah, but you can do this anywhere. You know, you can, uh, you know, like you say, you can pick a campground and set it up there. But, you know. Well, I think that's what we're going to do. So for folks, folks listening, let's make this a real thing, because, um, we're going to find we haven't got a location yet, but it needs to be real a reasonable size campsite. So if you're into camping, or if you like to have some luxurious camping, so I have a caravan. Listeners will know, and Stephen Segsby has a camper van. You know, not not quite a Winnebago, a sort of a, a little yeah. mini a little mini camper van. Simon probably has a tent. Yeah, I've got a tent. <laughs> you can set up your own little Bless him. We'll take pity on him when it rains. And uh, the idea being is that we're going to head down to the Forest of Dean. I think that's pretty much decided over the May bank holiday. Now, I'm going to get my finger out and find a a campsite that at least I'm going to go to. So if nothing else, I'll be there. And I'm sure Simon will be as well. Yes. And uh, it may just be us. But who knows? But it will well, be you know, that weekend. No, I mean, I thought it might be just me that first year. and you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's a little bit more perhaps hoops to jump through because folks have actually got to go and book into a campsite to come and they can't just rock up at our house, you know, true, like, they did with, like they did with you. 
True. So we'll, uh, I don't know, what are we going to do, Simon? We're going to make it the Saturday night and the Sunday night, I guess. Saturday, May the 30th and Sunday, 31st of May. Yeah, that sound, sounds reasonable to me. Seems, yeah. to, seems, seems to make sense, yeah. And I'll um, ready to bring their gear and, uh, and some prints and you'll be there. You'll be going. Yep. I'll uh, I'll spend some time. I've got a day to myself tomorrow and um, I was going to go in the dark room. I probably still will go in the dark room, but I'm going to just spend an hour picking a couple of campsites and seeing what sort of availability they've got, Simon. That's and cool. I'll um, I'll update the Facebook uh, group. Andrew. Silence. Oh, no, I'm still here. Oh, there you yeah. are. Now I got okay. it. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're all being oh. so polite, not wanting to talk over each other. No one was speaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, one of the things about the, um, the idea about going somewhere like the Forest of Dean as well is that it, it's it's probably got quite a few things there that's the, for the, that's going to attract large format photographers. Certainly, there's a big forest, and there are right. lots of features um, in the forest and wild boar. Uh, apparently, but I guess they probably are not going to be on our agenda. I'd, I'd imagine. Um, uh, but, you hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, oh no, where have I gone with this with this train of thought? Oh, that was it. When I was uh, chatting to Stephen. Um, Another thing that, that, that I realised that, and, and you've already touched upon it, Bill, that a lot of, especially I would say large format photographers, are quite solitary people when it comes to actually taking their, their photographs. Because I guess walking through a forest uh, with tripods and setting up and getting the same photograph is probably not that uh, that appealing to many uh, large format photographers. So th- I think the the thought process that I have in my head is that what happens in the day is what any whatever whatever anybody wants to do, and right. and really this is probably more about the get together in the evening and talking about our days and, exactly. uh, and the things and, we want to do. You know, just to tell you a little bit about what I did is I like I told you I live in a pretty beautiful area, so it's very conducive to photography, as is all of the country you live in, I would think. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know. I will say in defense of photographing in groups of people, the thing that surprises me the most, especially about my Iceland trips, Iceland trips and things like that, is that people, they might shoot in the same place, but they don't shoot the same things. That's the amazing part about it. So, you know, as long as we set the ground rules that you don't get in other people's shots and step in the way, it's not like you're all shooting the same shots. Um, you know, everybody sees things differently. So just to throw that out there, you know, yeah, um, and but yeah, it's definitely in photo stock, you know, during the day, people go out, they do their things. I, I schedule things for the evening. And that's it's basically a way for people not only to come and fill their minds with other people's work and share their own work. It's a way for them to get out in the, um, in the environment and shoot some photographs. I think it's also an opportunity for I mean, there are, there are some people, um, some photographers that love to uh, share knowledge and share their knowledge so mm-hmm. i would i would imagine there will be well i'd like to think there's some more people than just andrew and i going uh, but they'll be good if there are some people there that, that want to share knowledge and uh, to, to help the less experienced people like myself um in in things and uh, they might want to pair up with people um certainly oh. that's something that was something i've i've really enjoyed in the areas in in the dark room that I've actually managed to pass information on on to other people, even though I'm I'm very inexperienced. Um, I think it's I think passing on information is just a joyful thing to do. Well, and that's the beauty of this thing of all these things, whether they're whether it's photo stock or the trips that I lead. 
you know, you get that many people in one van that have this interest in photography and everybody has different experiences and you'd be surprised how much you learn even from the least experienced person. So, you know, sharing knowledge like that is pretty valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, just to bring this, this section to a close, uh, keep an eye on the Facebook group. Our Facebook group is, is the large format photographers podcast Facebook group, uh, because we'll put details in there. Um, and uh, I guess we'll probably spread some information via our Twitter Twitter feeds. And we also now have a proper Instagram account at long last. Um, there's not much on it at the moment. There's literally just uh, the last photograph that was uh, for the artwork for the last podcast, which we're still trying to work out exactly what we're doing with this, uh, this Instagram account. But we do have one, and it's not hard to find because it's large format photography podcast. Um, and we might do stuff with uh, hashtags and things like that. And uh, I guess if we do, it'll probably be LFPP. Sort of makes a a bit a bit of sense. So we'll try and get information out to uh, somehow to those people that don't go onto Facebook. And we understand why you don't go onto Facebook. But to be fair, it's just the Facebook groups and probably our group is a good enough reason just to join Facebook just for that reason and nothing else. Uh, I think you would agree with that, Andrew. Yeah. So while I've been talking, listen. Also, once oops, I'm sorry. No, you carry on. It's all right. You know, once you once you get this all together, let me know as well, because, um, you know, I, I don't know how much of our following crosses over. But I do know quite know quite a people, few people over in your country that might want to know about something like this if they don't already know about you. So, um, you know, I could help spread that word as well. That'd be fantastic. And of course, if there's anybody that's going over to to your event, ours is going to be what two weeks before or there thereabouts um so right. it, it can help acclimatize people to get in the frame of mind for for your event <laughs> yeah that'd be great yes and uh you know in the future if you do this again i mean it's kind of short notice but uh i'd love to come and do something like this i think i mentioned through email with you that i've often been talked to by some of the people over in britain that come to perhaps try to organize an event like i do in photo uh, here at photostock over there as well we almost did it one year down in cornwall but it just fell through yeah and uh but yeah it, it'd be a great time and like i say I, I know a lot of people over there which they probably follow you already but um but it seems like uh you've got a pretty strong crew of people crew of people over there yeah while i've been uh while you've been chatting i just did a quick google search simon and uh, this may not end up being the place we stay at but there's a there's a a large campsite called Bracelands Campsite Forest of Dean. 520 pitches, toilets and showers, hard standing, rally rally fields available. Oh, oh right. there you go. Pets welcome, open all year. It's got camping pods if you don't if you want to do some glamping. Mm. Right. So uh, it's just near you, you just turn off as you drive down through Monmouth. You turn off. It describes itself as being on the edge of the Forest of Dean, so maybe not right in the middle, but certainly it's um, it's in the right sort of area and it's big enough to accommodate probably, and it's got some good reviews. So I don't know. I'll do some more research, but that's uh, certainly there's that one place there. Sounds to me like you guys are on your way. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if ever there was uh, any kind of encouragement that, that for us to do it, it's having you on the show, Bill. Oh well, that's nice of you to say. But all I can say from my experience is you build something and they really do come. So also be careful what you wish for. <laughs> well, with this one, we could have our own field. You see, it says. Um, yeah, there you go. You've got your. Yeah. Rally fields available. 
<laughs> you can. I want uh, I want electricity though. I don't want to be you know I'm going to plug the caravan into something. I don't want any. I don't want to be just stuck in a field. Just wait till y'all get out there with your large format cameras on your tripods. <laughs> It'd be a sight to behold. It looks great. Yeah, exciting. I'd like to go canoeing as well, but we'll see how we go because the Forest of Dean's got the river. Is it the River Y? I think it might be. Yeah, it is. There's yeah. a lot. Yeah, well, then you've got something for uh, you know. One of the things about Photostock is a lot of people bring their spouses, whether they be the men or the women that aren't interested in photography, and it's nice to have something for them to do too. So canoeing sounds good. Of course, there's, there's Tinton Abbey down there as well. Um, yep. Wow. And, that's yeah. There you go. Yeah. So the heart of the pictorial. Well, there, there was. I think yeah, the were the pictorialists doing stuff down, down that there. Way. Yeah, well, they they would yep. have done stuff with abbeys and you know all that. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see, and that's the thing too, is that for grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, and also the other side of the ocean. You know, I think of your country as being endless places to photograph. You know, uh, you know, I mean, I've been around quite a bit over there, but it's such a beautiful country. Do something in Wales. Well, it's on the it's on the border. That's nice. right uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, right. it's uh, certainly if somebody wanted to go over there, they certainly could do from there quite easily. Is would that be northern or southern? Uh, in the it's the south. So south, south. east Wales. Okay. Okay. My family yeah. comes from North Wales. I come from a little village called Roslana Frigog is where my family comes from. In uh, North Wales, not too far from Wrexham. Oh right, okay. yeah. That's not a million miles from where I live. Actually, I mean, I'm in England, but uh, Wrexham's okay. only about thirty-five miles away. Yeah, over my many years, I've spent a lot of time over there. You know, um, not so much now. You know, my fa- my folks and most of the old family are past, and I still keep in contact with some of my younger cousins and things. But I haven't been back to Wales since I don't know. I think maybe 2006. I love it there. It's a beautiful place. Oh, Simon found another one. Yes. <laughs> this one's called Beecher's Farm Campsite. This is right in the heart of the forest. And this has got fire pits on a site, flicking, Whoa. flickering flames as you watch the night skies with the stars above. Doesn't sound like it'll have electric hookup for my caravan. This is more this is more um, basic, but uh, family camp- camping. Beecher's Farm welcomes families, groups, couples and individuals in tents, caravans. Oh, there we go. Campers or bivvies. Stay <coughs> for a night a week. So. Come and enjoy the view and open fire and good facilities because not many campsites actually allow um, allow open, uh, fires. open fires. But oh, this does have electricity as well, electric hookup. Yeah, Beecher's Farm established for over two hundred years. Fantastic. Well, if you're talking uh, May thirtieth, you got to get going on this. I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No time to waste. No, we will. And, uh, and it's bank holiday as well, so the sites get booked up, which is why we need to go for a big site. So there's two, I think, probably to choose from. Okay, well, you, well go on, sorry. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you have a uh, website or if you just rely on the Facebook page. Just just the Facebook page, really, and uh, our Twitter Twitter account. That's the only real way we're getting information out at the moment. I see. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, – we'll, we'll – but uh, I mean, we haven't even got a name for this uh, just just as yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll 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 park that one now and we'll we'll get to work on that. So while we're working on that, what what projects and things are, are you up to at the moment, Bill? Uh, well, pretty much just planning for the photo stock event right now. I mean, um, I've got to I've got to get that all together. Um, I'm starting earlier than I usually do. Like I say, I'm usually a little uh, 
slow on this thing. But the other thing is I've got the Faroe Islands trip coming up um, from April 25th to May 3rd this year. And I'm gearing up on that. We so far have still four places left on that trip. So if anybody's interested, you can go to my website, BillSchwab.com, and go to the tours and workshop section, and you'll you'll see the trip listed. Um, but that's the next trip that I have coming up. And then uh, prior to that, I'll be out in Yosemite teaching digital negatives with uh, Carrot Kuklis as part of his workshop in platinum printing. So that'll be at the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite National Park. Uh, and that, I believe, is March 20th to the 22nd, but it's already sold out, sadly, or good, um, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, and let's see. And then, like I say, after that is photo stock. And then in October coming up, I have the other Iceland Summit every year. We, do take a, we set up a um, kind of a residency workshop up in a little town called Jupavik in the west fjords of Iceland still in the wilds, you know, away from all the tourists. And uh, that will be happening this year, I think, between October 2nd and 12th. So it's a pretty full year coming up. Now, that's, that's interesting because most uh, – well, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but the, the Iceland workshops, um, mm -hmm. most, most people that I know that have gone to Iceland um, tend to go over there in, around, well, in the, in the wintertime. Right, and, uh, and you're in the in the fall, the autumn, as we say over here. Um, yeah. So, what's the what's the thinking behind that? Well, you know, I just do. I've done all seasons over there, as far as my tours go. We've done several winter tours. Winter tours are difficult to run as a group, though, because they're logistically much more difficult based upon weather. Some days you might not be able to move, and if you're only booked in a certain hotel to a certain point, and you're trying to move twelve people around, it gets pretty difficult. Um, so now what I do is I like going in the fall. Uh, it tends to be one of the lesser traveled times. Um, there used to be off seasons in Iceland, but there aren't really anymore. Um, and in the north where I go, it's just it's hard for me to go to southern Iceland now and see it because 20 years ago when I would go, you could park your car at Skogarfoss uh, waterfalls and you would be the only person there for the whole day. And now hundreds of people come every hour. So it's hard to see that happen. Um, you know, I know it's going to happen, but it's hard to watch. So I like going up into the north, and I, I like the end of the year. I like the end of their season at this hotel that I rent out. So basically, they give me a better deal. I'm not, I'm not fighting with other tourists. We can take over the whole hotel, and basically the whole village just becomes the photo workshop for that week that we're there. And then we use that as a base now, and we day trip out from there rather than my old trips. We used to tour, and we'd be moving every day. So it was a matter of a lot of driving and packing up and unpacking every day. So. I like to run these a little bit differently now. Um, so I, I, I just like to go because it's off season and uh, we don't have to deal with a lot of tourists. And the, the weather is still pretty good at that time. And you are just getting up to the point where you might get a little bit of snow cover. So it tends to be a little bit more visually interesting as well. Well, weather's an interesting one as well. I mean, for Iceland at the time where you're doing that, and I assume when you do uh, the Faroe Islands as well, because neither of those places are known for their uh wall-to-wall -wall sunshine not that you always want wall to -wall sunshine, uh, no no i i prefer i prefer i prefer places like that you know you'll notice that none of my tours go anywhere um south of the 45th parallel really i i, I like inclement weather there's nothing worse than taking a bunch of photographers someplace and having it be sunny all week they start blaming you for it <laughs> 
photographers the only group you can take places and the the crummiest weather you can possibly get is is still doable for them you know what i mean well well that, that's an interesting subject in itself because there are, there are plenty of us um I assume all all around the world that will look outside and say that oh it's a bit miserable today the light's rubbish and I'm not going to go out uh, yeah. and, and I've I, I've learned relatively recently uh, that that's a nonsense. Uh, oh yeah, no, that's the uh, that's the uh, that's little minds thinking there. You know, I mean the uh, you've got to get out in the worst weather because that makes the photographs that people like to look at. You know, I mean you'll be really surprised. When I started photographing at night, you know, many, many years ago, it was amazing the response people had because they just hadn't looked at anything at night like that, you know. So that's it. You go out in inclement weather and terrible weather and you take these photographs and it's maybe difficult and, you know, uncomfortable for you to make them. But the response to that is so much better than taking pictures on sunny days. You know, we're not out to make calendars. I like the pictures you made. Um, My attention suddenly spiked when you mentioned photography at night time because i've been looking at a lot of night photographers work recently and i discovered one today which i probably should have heard of him before uh william gedney who uh, i don't know if you've come across an american photographer i think he yeah i don't know when he died he died a while ago i think but he was kind of discovered after he died right um, right and if you google uh, william gedney houses at night he shot between 1960 and 1973 so you've got these houses at nighttime and i know you've done a similar thing and also right right and that was Todd, kind of an, a bit Todd of an influence Heidel. there too is like more of photographing these houses as portraits rather than as um, yeah but these are iconic because there's lots of old 60s and 70s cars parked in front yeah. of these yeah. uh, these houses these night shops todd Hydo is another one um, yeah todd's done a lot of nighttime work uh, just yeah. shooting out of the windshield of his car you know basically yeah and there's just something about them that you know what would otherwise be fairly mundane pictures in many people's eyes take on a kind of otherworldliness and and they beg all sorts of questions about the sort of folks who are living there and what's going on. You know, that's the challenge to us as photographers and photographic artists is to see things differently than everybody does and to bring that to them. And that's, you know, that's what happens. That's, you know, so back to a long answer to your short question is, yeah, we do have a lot of inclement weather when we're on these trips, but there's, rarely days when we don't work and um you know there's something to be seen in everything as long as like i tell people as long as we're not in danger I'm, we're going out yeah so i'm, I'm just, just thinking about if there are any tips for for people to 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 go out in um in in relatively poor light if there's such a thing and uh and and bad weather because there are times where the the, the overall scenic view is is pretty uninspiring uh, so you've got bland skies and, and and things like that um are there other things that you suggest that people look for well you know um when when the environment like as, as a whole has become kind of boring to you perhaps maybe then you just want to look to more of the the micro kind of things that make you know make detailed images that kind of thing and not not worry so much about that but i don't know those are the challenges that i like as a photographer you know i mean you know, if you're just given a nice puffy blue sky every day that you can throw a red filter on and, you know, make endless nice pictures, it's just kind of boring after a while, isn't it? You know, I mean, so what I like is taking those those situations that you've just described and trying to make, you know, what's the saying, making silk purses out of sow's ears kind of a thing. You know, I mean, I grew up in Detroit and I, I lived very near the Rouge um, auto plant. 
you know, and as a young person growing up, it wasn't the most beautiful or inspiring kind of a place. But when I got a little older and I started wanting to photograph and go out and photograph, and I had this feeling that all art had to be made somewhere else, you know what I mean? But, you know, now kind of my motto is that the measure of a good photographer is the photographs that he or she can make in their own backyard, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you basically work with what you have and that's, that's your job is to make that interesting. You know, you don't want to spend, you know, $5,000 going to an exotic place and it rains for a week and you just stay in your hotel watching TV. You know, you have to go out and make something with that rain and that's your, that's your challenge, you know? Um, so all I can say as a tip is just to try to look at things completely differently than anybody does. I mean, something that you think isn't visual is very visual. Just like you say, the most mundane things can be some of the most beautiful photographs. It just depends on how you look at them and how you put that frame around it. Well, um, you know, as far you, as the, ex- so go ahead. Well, as far as the exposures go in poor light like that, I mean, that's the beauty of film and electrons is that, you know, it's collecting light all the time. So, you know, I also used to tell people about night photography. Why do you photograph at night? And I would say the range of tones at night are infinite in comparison to the daylight. You know, daylight is very contrasting and very, you know, harsh. But at night, everything is beautiful and creamy. And, you know, once your eyes have adjusted, you see things that, that are just gorgeous at night, you know. And, um, and there's no limitation to what you can photograph with your camera because you've got a long experience exposure and you've got aperture control and you've got uh, ISO controls and you know sky's the limit basically if you want to see proof of that uh, folks listening go to Bill's website billschwab.com and go to his uh, portfolio section and right at the top there there's Detroit as Bill mentioned and it's called Detroit where we used to live and these are the nighttime pictures that I was alluding to a little while yes. ago uh, where, where Bill, you've just gone around your neighborhood, I guess, and you photograph building buildings and streets and interesting. I mean, they, they're well, just, what I did with they're, that they're project, just, they're, they're beautiful. But sorry, go well, on. Well, thank yeah, you explain. very much. You know, I worked at the, in Detroit a lot at night over the years. I mean, and Detroit, uh, for, I don't know how much of your viewers know about Detroit, but Detroit was the first major city in the world to go bankrupt. And, you know, Detroit once was a world class city. And, you know, it will be again, but it, 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 fell off the radar and it became pretty horribly abandoned and in disrepair and um, dilapidated. And it was a photographer's dream for people that didn't know the context of Detroit. But for me living in Detroit, it was hard for me to go out and shoot ruins. And we, and we ended up calling it ruin porn in Detroit. And it was basically people coming from outside of the world, basically to photograph ruins, but having no context of the people that lived there or anything that happened. So a lot of people were after me. They knew that I didn't feel great about that. I was not a big proponent of the ruin porn. The ruin porn, as fun as it was for people to come and go break into abandoned buildings and take photographs, um, you know, there's not much more to that than taking pictures of decay. And you know, it's a great thing for photographers to do, and a lot of them do it. But a lot of them do it, and there's not much of a context. So. People were coming to me saying, why aren't you photographing your own city when everybody's coming from around the world? And, you know, I took that to heart and I tried to look at a way to photograph the city. And there was one of those photographs that was taken of, a, of what was known as the Boblo Boat in Detroit. And it was a, um, a resort, uh, um, um, an amusement park out in the Detroit River where you would get on this boat and you would take this hour boat ride out to the park. And the boat ride became part of the trip. And everybody of a certain age of Detroit and any area around us had been on that boat at one time. 
Well, one night I found that boat. It had been abandoned and somebody had brought it back to a part of the city along a river. And I went to photograph it at night as this abandoned ghost ship. And that hit me is that everybody in my city had been on that boat at one time. And that was how to tell this story is not to tell the story of abandonment, but use the abandonment to tell the story of the people that used to live there. And that's what Detroit, where we used to live, came from. Is Detroit went from 2 million people at one time to 700,000 people now. So that's an amazing amount of abandonment. At one time, there were 85,000 abandoned structures in Detroit. So I chose to go out and photograph these places at night because I didn't want the people that live there to be part of it. And I didn't want any socioeconomic group to be blamed for what happened to Detroit because it was everybody's fault what happened to Detroit. So basically... I went out and I photographed these buildings in these old neighborhoods that are all dilapidated and falling apart. I found maybe the one house where somebody still lived and there was a light on in the window. And I started to post these photographs at night of these ghostly images of Detroit. Basically, what I was calling them was portraits of these these houses and neighborhoods. And people started to respond to them online incredibly. It was such an out. I mean, it went crazy. Um, I had people checking in on it every day. I would post a new image every day and people would check in and they would say, you know, my grandparents used to live here or I used to live here and now we live in Seattle or now we live in Paris. And, you know, what happened to my house? What happened to this? And I started to go out and find these people's homes if they still existed and photograph them. And that's how the project became Detroit, where we used to live, because it seemed like everybody that was responding to this project was somebody that lived in Detroit at one time or had some connection to it, but no longer lived there. So that's where that story came from. Um, and that was quite a, I worked on that project for two years and, um, you know, I, I didn't know where to begin and where to end on it, you know, and I, I could still be working on that project. But Detroit has changed a lot since then. And a lot of the abandonment has been taken away and there there is a bit of a gentrification going on, although it's very small, but but it is happening. So that was a particular project that just captured a point in time when the old was passing and the new was coming in basically the um uh, i mean forgive me for asking this but they are film images aren't they no they're not that was my they're first not. my first solely digital project wow and okay. the way that i did that was to the reason that i did it that way is i allowed myself all of the trappings of the digital world so i, I allowed myself um, a little bit of um, manipulation with them. Uh, the, the idea behind the project was not to be a document. It was to be an allegory. It was to tell a story. And the best way to do that was I, I, um, in certain ways, I, I, I hyper-reality them, you know, perhaps. is like I, 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 I picked up clarity and I, I, um, I, I added a little bit of, say, um, uh, vibrance here and there, or I would change perspectives in a way like I would normally do with a view camera, but I did it digitally. So that was my first fully digital project where I allowed it to be digital from beginning to end, except when I finally did the final show was in Toronto and it was done at Toronto Imageworks and it was all done. It was all done um, chromographically. It was all done um, on light jet. So it was all printed out onto actual photographic paper and processed chemically. Uh, Because there still is, I still have a bit of a problem with inkjet printing. Um, I like the idea of continuous tone image, not a not a simulated image made through dots. And um, I, I believe that the brain knows the difference. So if I take an inkjet image and I put it next to a chromogenic print, um, be it shot on film or anything, it's just much more pleasing and much more satisfying to my brain than 
mean, it's not, if I'm looking at an inkjet image, it looks fine. But if I put it next to a chromogenic print, immediately I see the richness in the, in the uh, you know. And I think what happens is just like with a movie, you know, we watch movies because of persistence of vision. You know, it's actually a series of a bunch of little images put together. Um, yet you watch a movie and it's different than reality, right? You watch somebody really move in reality and it looks completely different than somebody moving on a film. So, and it's the same way I believe with inkjet images. It's like we're simulating a continuous tone through a series of millions of little dots. And your brain knows that difference, mm. I think. And I think your brain knows the difference in music as well. Like you sit somebody down in front of a nice analog, beautiful stereo and you play music and it can make them cry. But an MP, an MP3 is never going to do that. You know, an MP3 is just kind of, unfortunately, a sad um, reproduction of of an analog sound, you know, I mean, it's hard to, I, I, I don't want to make this a digital argument, but there is still an element of the analog that is more appealing to me. Well, you do both splendidly. That's all I can say. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, I think that's also for a, a good photographer. I mean, large format work is great. 35 millimeter work is great. I think that one of the most important things as a photographer is to keep your vision alive and the way to yeah. keep your vision alive is not to get bored. So for, for me, you know, one month I might be using a, my next pan Hasselblad. The next month I might be shooting with my iPhone or now with this new, uh, Instax camera that I've been using, or it doesn't really matter as long as I'm creating imagery. It doesn't really so matter to me what I use. Sounds like, it a, actually sounds, like more excuse, sounds like an excuse to go and buy more cameras to me, Bill. That's what it sounds <laughs> exactly. like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Get in those we all, auctions. Yeah, we, we always need more cameras and lenses. There's, um, <laughs> that's, uh, exactly. That's, yeah. Um, right. I, th I think, uh, well, looking at looking at the clock, we've um, pretty much hit the uh, the target that we needed to, and I think that's a good place to start to wind things down. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been great having you on. And... Um, I'm going to I just want to run through a couple of things and then we'll do some shout outs and uh, talk about how people can follow people and, and stuff. So um, sure thing. first thing I just want to say is uh, thank you uh, to those people that have donated to us on coffee. That's ko-fi.com. And uh, we have a page on there, which is the Classic Lenses podcast. No, it isn't. Um, no, 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 we don't. Well, we do. Well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's large format photography podcast oh dear oh dear um well anyway so we have a large <laughs> format photography podcast page on there and uh, th uh since we've last been on two weeks ago three people have donated to us and i want to say thank you to those three people um the first one in the uh, chronological order was jeremy north um and uh, and jeremy says uh, you two are my Zen masters of large format. Um, <laughs> well, at least one of you is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, th I think we know Thanks, which one. Jeremy. That is. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, then uh, Dan Tree has uh, donated to us. Didn't leave a message, but thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. And uh, Greg Opst, um, previous guest on the show. Um, he uh, has donate, donated to us and he says, keep up the good work, guys, and thanks for an interesting insight. Thanks for interesting, insightful guests. Um, and there's got a hashtag on there of uh, believe in X-ray film. So uh, mm -hmm. thank you very, very much, Greg. It's, uh, it's, it's really appreciated. Um, OK, so uh, I, we didn't actually prime you on this one, uh, but do you have any shout outs you might want to say hello to Bill? Oh, me? Gosh, I don't know. Just 
hello to everybody, all the Photostat crew and all my, uh, you know, anybody out there who has to know who I am or that kind of thing. You know, I've got a lot of friends out in the world. It's hard to pick any one person. You've already mentioned a few people, haven't you? You've mentioned Christine Anderson with her salt. Yeah, Christina Z. Anderson and my friend Kara Kuklis, another great educator. Um, uh, Clay Harmon, you might want to check out his book on uh, Photogravure. Um, Hanamule tends to sponsor me. Uh, shout out to Hanamule USA and Carol Boss. She's been wonderful and supplies paper for all of my uh, platinum workshops and things. And um, I don't know. I, I, I forgive anybody that I'm not mentioning. Forgive me for not mentioning you. When we... Um well, I think pretty much every guest we've had on this show, we're going to get back at some point. But when we eventually get round to you again, Bill, uh, we'll perhaps dive into some of those uh, processes that you're, you've mastered or you've worked on oh, over the years. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's uh, anything from wet play to whatever I, I, I do. And um, mm -hmm. I'm always happy to share the knowledge. And uh, I really like what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to be a member of it, uh, part of it anytime. So. And, uh, you know, you do your event, keep it going. You know, maybe I can get there next year or the year after. Oh, that's scary. That'll be great, though. That'll be fun. Uh, yes, <laughs> that, definitely. Um, I, I want to give a uh, quick shout out to Matt Marash uh, because uh, Matt helped um, Andrew get in touch with you, Bill. Uh, was yes, you, uh, hello to Matt. Matt's a good guy. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Matt, and uh, and um, thank you for persevering with my uh, attempt to understand the zone system when you came on as well. <laughs> <laughs> appreciated that um so uh, that's that's my shout out other than other than the the six times darkroom in stoke-on-trent in staffordshire um, we meet on a tuesday night uh, every week and if you want to have a go at uh, printing and developing and processing and have a go with our large format and larger we can do up to seven by five or five by seven depending on where you're from um wow. And uh, that's that's what uh, Stephen Steggersby um, gave to us. So uh, we're eternally grateful to Stephen. And, uh, oh, nice of Stephen. That's very good. Absolutely. And uh, not only that, uh, uh, a chap um, gave us a, uh, a Schneider 180 millimeter enlarging lens for it um, this week as well. So um, we're nice. made up, made up. Um, Andrew, any shout outs this week? Well, only a couple of people have popped up on the Facebook group while we've been chatting, because I, I said about an hour ago chatting with uh, Bill Schwab for episode 22. So um, I guess uh, a couple of people popped up, so I'll say hello to them. Mark uh, Mark Thole, I think that's how you pronounce his surname. Um, oh, Mark. I know Mark. Mark, yeah. He knows you too. He says, I know Bill. Good dude, oh, yeah, he, he says. He's a photostat guy, yeah. Great. Yeah, I, yeah, he says he's so mutual friends of, of of ours, you and Matt Marash. So nice, he, yeah. he lives in Westerville, Ohio. So hi, Mark. Yep. And uh, I don't know if, if uh, uh, on Facebook, T. Paul Robel, W-R-O-B-E-L. Oh, yeah. You know him as well? Yep, yep, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's another one of ours. Oh, it's nice. It's nice. <laughs> that, uh, I, I didn't mention this. I didn't realize we were going to be live. I would have promoted this more. So sorry. <laughs> well, we're not live, really. We'll, but we'll be putting the show out a bit later. But while we've been, okay. talk, while we've been talking, I've been I've been going on the Facebook. I was um, going on the Facebook group page and uh, chatting to a few. Well, folks. if you'll say what? hello to both of those gentlemen for me, that would be great. I'm looking hello. forward to seeing them. I'll probably be seeing them in June. Bill says hi. <laughs> <laughs> great. And this and this episode will go out in a matter of hours as well, so it'll still be fresh in people's memory as well. So that's good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Well, and if there's anything in the future that I can do to help out, um, you know, just say the word. You know, I'm always willing to help. 
uh, an effort like this, that's for sure. No, that's 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 really appreciated, and I guess we will be calling upon um, your advice for the closer we get to this event happening in the in in May. Um, yeah, the the more sure thing. advice we the better, really. I think on that one. Um, uh, let you know about a few of the calls, even though there's not many. Yeah. Nothing but good comes from getting people together like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, finally. Um, <clears throat> If you want to, I mean, we've already mentioned websites and things like that, but there's no harm in doing a recap about the places where people can follow you. Oh, for me, it's uh, either BillSchwab.com, B-I-L-L-S-C-H-W-A-B, or you can go to my Northlight Workshops page, which is where I list all of the workshops that we teach and and the trips that we run. Um, you can follow me on Instagram if you want, Bill underscore Schwab. Um, that's about it. You know, get on my mailing list. I send out a newsletter every once in a while. Um, you get special deals on prints or maybe discounted, uh, discounts on a trip or, you know, information about photo stock, basically, um, that kind of thing. So I hope there's a few listeners out there that will join in. Yeah. I signed up for that while we were talking. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's better than going on eBay and buying things, Simon. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been very good this year. I've I've hardly bought anything this year. So um, try to use what I have. That's 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 my motto for this year, which I'm going to ignore as soon as I see something I want. Um, it's a good so, way to be, you know. Use the yeah. tools that are in the bag already and see how far you can push them. Definitely, definitely. Um, Andrew, how can people follow you outside of this podcast? Um, on Twitter, Warboys Snapper, uh, they can find me hanging around the Facebook group, Large Format Photography Facebook group. They can listen to me every two weeks on the Lensless podcast, all about pinhole photography. And Bill, we've been doing that one for two, nearly two years now. So uh, fantastic for, for pinhole photography, which is even more of a niche, I suspect, than uh, large format photography. So you can find oh, me there. And on Instagram as Warboy Snapper. Great, great, right. I have to check all these out. Okay, <laughs> um, I'll just just run through mine. Actually, before I get that far, did I have I already mentioned that we'll do emails next time? I've already said that. Well, you're a bit vague. You said we we're going to yeah. do it at the end of the show. Maybe when Bill's gone, you can do them, or we can do them next time. Whatever. I, I think we're going to have to do them next time. So, um, yeah, so okay. uh, thank you for those emails that come in. And if uh, anybody wants to send any more emails in. Um, uh, it's the address is large format photography podcast at gmail.com. Um, and finally, uh, places where you can find me, I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. And we hang out in the large format photography podcast Facebook group uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook, <laughs> strangely enough. Um, so <clears throat> we've, we're sort of on youtube this sort of goes to youtube but there have been some problems with youtube so i don't know if it'll actually go across to that but nobody really listens on youtube anyway um and uh, you can also hear me weekly on the classic lenses podcast as well um so that's pretty much it so just uh, go back to bill again there bill it's been great having you on the show it's been great it's been great being here i appreciate it and thanks for reaching out and uh, just one last thing was photostockfest.com uh come on over and join in that'd be great excellent excellent um so that's it um i just want to say thank you to kevin mcleod who provides our 
theme music uh, called Two Finger Johnny and uh, you can find out more about that on www.incompetech.com so that's it for this fortnight um, we'll be back in two weeks so uh, goodbye thank Bye. you very much bye bye take care Bye.